Father, we thank you for the resurrection. Would you lead us into it today? Would you help us to understand that the empty tomb means that life can be different today for us? We thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. There was a woman who uh, looked out of her window, and she saw her German shepherd out in her backyard shaking the life out of a neighbor's rabbit. And this was not a good thing, because she did not get along well with these neighbors, and so this was going to be a disaster. So she grabbed a broom, she went out in the yard, she started to pummel her dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth, and then she panicked. She, she didn't know what else to do, and so she kind of looked around to make sure that nobody had seen anything, and she, she grabbed the rabbit, she took it inside her house, she gave it a bath, She blow-dried it to its original fluffiness. Uh, She combed it until it was looking really good. And then she snuck back into her neighbor's yard. She found the cage. She opened the cage. She propped the rabbit up inside the cage where it belonged, shut the cage, went back to her house. About an hour later, she hears screams from her neighbor's backyard. She went over to ask her neighbor, like, what's up? I don't know what's going on. And her neighbor said, a rabbit? Our rabbit, he died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. Some of you will get that tomorrow, I think. It's all right. When when you expect death, but you see life, it changes you. Uh, John Orberg tells a story of, of one of his minister friends named John who worked in Minnesota, and he would have to travel to little rural communities where they didn't have churches, so they didn't have Uh, people to do funerals. And so he would go out with the funeral director to these uh, local, these rural communities to do funerals. And he would just ride with the funeral director in his hearse. And so they, sometimes these were long trips. And uh, one time they were coming back from one of these trips and John got really tired. And so he decided, I'm going to take a nap. And he realized that the back was empty because they had just had the funeral. And so he actually climbed in the back of the hearse and stretched out and took a nap. Well, while he's taking a nap back there, the driver realizes he needed gas. And so he, he wheels into the gas station. And in those days, there, were, uh, there was actually an attendant who would come out and pump the gas. And so this attendant comes out and he starts pumping gas. He, all of a sudden, he looks through the window and he sees this body. It's not a casket, but it's a body. And it freaks him out a little bit, but he keeps you know, pumping the gas. And while he's pumping gas, John wakes up. His eyes pop open. And he sits forward, and he knocks on the window, and he waves to the attendant, and he said, I've never seen anybody run so fast, right? Uh, when, when you expect death, but you see life, it changes you. And I have to uh, concur about that wholeheartedly. Uh, my first real job, besides throwing papers in Fort Scott, America, was actually, I worked at a funeral home, and um, I was hired literally to answer the phone. They said, I want you, we want you to sit here uh, three nights a week and do your homework or whatever, but we need you to answer the phone. Uh, in those days, they had to hire somebody to actually sit by the phone and listen for the phone and answer the phone when it rang so that they could pass on messages. And they would say, you know, whatever the message is, uh, if it's X, Y, or Z, you need to make this call and, you know, forward the message. So, 
Literally, I was the first ever voicemail system. That's what I was back in the 80s, um, in the dark ages before uh, all the technology happened. And one of my most creepy jobs was that I had to lock up the place at the end of the night. And so going through a funeral home, turning off lights, that's, that's kind of creepy. But it gets worse than that because sometimes if there was a body lying in state, um, it was my job to go to the casket and if there were flowers either on the casket or in the casket, uh, maybe it was pinned to a lapel, maybe it was being held by hand, it was my job to get those, reach in to the casket, get those flowers, take them back to the back of the building where there was a refrigerator to put them in the refrigerator so that they would keep. Did I mention that I was 14 when I did this? Whew, right? I always, oh, I, was, I always had to work up the nerve. Like, like, literally, there were guys that, you know, they had a boutonniere pinned to the lapel, and I would have to reach in. I always thought, what happens if he pops his eyes open? What happens if he grabs me, you know? Uh, if that had happened, then the movie Forrest Gump would be modeled after my life because I would still be running. That's, that's what would happen. Uh, when people see life where they're expecting death, it changes them. And in John chapter 11 today, everybody knew what they were looking at. They were looking at death. But unexpectedly, life jumps out at them. If you um, are familiar with the story in John chapter 11, uh, you'll know that Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies. And we really don't know how he died, but we just know that he died while Jesus was away with his disciples. Um, and by the time Jesus makes it to his friend's side, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Four days go by before Jesus comes for the funeral. There's fashionably late to a funeral, and then there's Jesus. And when he gets there, he speaks to Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and it's what he says to Martha that is really the focus for us today. She when she knows that Jesus is coming, she sees Jesus and she runs out to meet him and she says this, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, it's not really an angry statement, it's just a statement of sorrow for her brother and she realizes that even before Jesus' own resurrection, people around Jesus had this sense that he had the keys to life. She realizes he has an authority of some sort that's beyond any other authority. And so she says, if only you had been here. And Jesus says, don't worry, your brother will rise again. Now, that, that, that's a nice kind of thought. It's kind of like what we say to each other when there's a funeral. Oh, we'll see them again, right? Someday, that's the way Mary, uh, Martha took it. Someday, when at the end of time, Jesus will make everything right and spiritually, Lazarus will be ri risen on the judgment day at the end of time. And and Jesus says, no, 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 Martha, that's not it. You're not hearing me. He will rise again, and it will be today. And then he says these famous words that are very familiar to us. And they think, I think they need our focus today more than ever. Unfortunately, they are reserved for funerals. But I think they deserve a place on Easter. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is an amazing thing. 
Even before Jesus' own resurrection, he claims to be the resurrection. He's at a scene that is nothing but death. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, but this unexpected life is about to knock on the window and rattle the cages of some people. And Jesus uses these words to show us that there's a resurrection reality in him, and there's also a resurrection reality in us. And so, I want to stress a few words to make this more clear today. First, I want to stress the little word am. I am the resurrection. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I will be the resurrection, although that's true. He doesn't say, I will show you how to be resurrected so that you can be too, although on some level that's also true. He doesn't say either of those statements. He says this, I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. I am the way that anybody gets resurrected. In other words, I have been raised for you. A couple things about that. First, to be a Christian is more than just knowing that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's about understanding that he was raised for you, for your salvation. You don't even have a possibility of resurrection if Jesus isn't raised. And and Jesus, as he's talking to Martha, is painfully aware of this. And we have to go actually to the end of the story to, to see and grasp what Jesus is really saying to Martha. And if we go down to the end of the story, uh, I'll give you a quick recap. There's uh, a part where Jesus talks to his, uh, Lazarus's other sister, Mary, and then there's a part where he stands out in front of Lazarus's tomb and he actually weeps. And then there, there's a part where he prays to God about what he's about to do. God, give me, give me the power and let these people see that you are really God and I am really God. And uh, he calls for the stone to be moved away from the tomb. He says to the people around him, go move the stone. And they say, ooh, that's not a good idea, Jesus. But they move it anyway. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus starts walking out, even in his grave clothes. And Jesus says, take the grave clothes off of him so he can live again. And that takes us to the end. When Lazarus stumbles out of the tomb, word spread about that. You can't keep that kind of story for long, right? And the religious leaders get wind of the miracle. And they get together and they ask each other, what are we going to do? I mean, now, now this guy is raising people from the dead. He's bringing people to life. And as great as that is, Now he's going to have power with the people that we don't have, and we will be over. And so in verse 53, it reads this. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's the end of the story. Raising Lazarus would be too much for the religious leaders. That's what Jesus knew when he said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He knew that as soon as Lazarus walked out of the tomb, that they would want to kill him. Jesus knew that to bring Lazarus out of the tomb, he would have to go into the tomb. Jesus knew that to defeat death for his friend meant that he would have to die himself. And we're in the same boat. We don't have a prayer of resurrection without Jesus. And he can't be resurrected 
without dying first. And so in order to raise you and to raise me, he has to die. So I am the resurrection means this, that in order for Jesus to stop our funerals, he had to cause his own. He was raised for you. That's the incredible truth today. And out of that truth come some amazing implications. Here's, here's number one. Let me just share a few of those, and that will comprise our sermon today. Number one, because Jesus was raised for you, nothing can be held against you. Nothing can be held against you. A while back, I was up in Kansas City, and uh, I was at a place, and I saw a shirt, and I really liked it, and so I bought it, and uh, I got back to uh, the fort here, and I was pulling that shirt out of the bag in my home because I was going to admire my purchase. And as I pulled it out of the bag, I realized that the little security tag was still on the shirt. Uh, anybody ever been there? Um, yeah, this, I bought it in Kansas City. I'm not going to go all the way up to Kansas City. What am I going to do? I can't wear it with the security tag on there. I can't try to take it apart myself. There might be ink in there and it get all over everywhere. And so my wheels are spinning and I'm thinking, okay, surely in Fort Scott, there's got to be somebody that can take this apart for me. And so I thought about the, the stores around, and I went to a clothing store that actually had one of those security tag removers, and I went up to the lady, and I said, I said, here's the story. I explained my situation. I crossed my fingers. And this is what she said. The first thing she said was, do you have your receipt? Well, yes, I do. Then we'll take the tag off. We just don't want to help you steal anything. The deal. I said, fair enough, no problem. I went, I went home, I got the shirt, I got my receipt, and I went back to the store, and I showed the, uh, the lady my receipt, and they said, no problem. The shirt's paid for. We won't hold that against you. And they took off the security tag, and life was good, right? The resurrection of Jesus is the same for you and me. It's a receipt that says, paid in full that we can carry with us. It says that we are free of sin. It says that you can put all of those mistakes that you've made behind you. The resurrection is God's way of saying to you, you will never have to pay for those sins again. Never. Because Jesus has paid it all. Do you live in that? Do you live in that freedom? that comes knowing that somebody else paid and now nothing can be held against you. On the other hand, do you also walk in a debt of love to the person who paid? Let's stress another word today, and it's the word resurrection. I am the resurrection. And we'll see something more. Resurrection is what seemed to have happened in the backyard with the rabbit and maybe in the back of the hearse, but it's what really happened with Jesus. Uh, he was really dead. He was really buried and gone. And then he really lived again. It's, it's different than just a resuscitation. That's where somebody is unconscious and you bring them back. That's somebody who stopped breathing and you help them to breathe again. Jesus was way worse off than that. He was beaten 
He was bleeding. He hung on a cross until he was suffocated. His heart was run through with a spear. He was absolutely dead. They pulled him off that cross. They sealed him in a tomb for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And after those three days, he he raised to life again with more life than ever. And even before that will happen, here's Here he is with Martha, and he's using this word, resurrection. He's saying, I am the resurrection. And what that means is, Martha, I have achieved a victory and a certain power over death. I have an authority to make someone live even if they die. And here's the thing. What Jesus is offering to us in the resurrection of Lazarus, in his own resurrection is a way out of of the only inescapable reality that we have. And that is this, that we will all die. Every one of us. You are going to die. One day, some 14-year-old will freak out when they look in, and you're in the box. That's what will happen. What a delightfully rosy Easter message that is. That's why you came, right? But it's true, you're going to die. And so the question is, how are you going to deal with that? How do you deal with that? There's a couple ways right off the bat. Our culture is really good at the first one. It's denial. We'll just deny it. We, we know we're, it's like we know we're all in jail and there are bars and there are locks and guards and there are alarms all around us, but we have collectively decided that to deal with being in jail, that we're never going to talk about being in jail. We're not going to mention jail. There's no reference to jail. If it ever comes up, we're going to deny it. Jail? I'm not in jail. I don't have an orange jumpsuit on. No, no, no. That's not a problem. What is that? That's what we do with death. Death? Never heard of her. Don't know. And that works. That works for a lot of us until the funeral at 10 a.m. on Monday morning as the obituary is read. And then all of us prisoners are rounded up and we are forced to acknowledge the number on our chest. We are made to touch the bars. We are required to look at the gates and feel the handcuffs. We are commanded to concede that there are guard towers and razor wire. And it's embarrassing for us to do that because the thing that we've always denied is in fact a reality. We can't get around it. We are in jail. And I'm sitting in this funeral, and part of the deal is that I have to admit that one day it's going to be my obituary that's being read. I'm forced to wake myself up to that. One writer said this, For society's sake, we must hide the unbearable disturbance caused by the ugliness of dying. People need to believe that life is happy. What is he saying? He's saying this, If anyone of us actually admits to themselves the inevitable reality of death, then life will be drained of all of its joy. And we don't want that, so let's just deny death. Now, most of us discover that that doesn't really work. Whatever you deny actually ends up controlling you subconsciously. You say, I'll just sweep it under the rug and I'll forget about it. But the problem is, every time you step into that room, you have to walk around the rug because there's so much piled underneath it. The thing that you're denying is still running your life. And so the second approach that people take is this. Oh, let's not be afraid of death. Let's embrace it. 
yeah, that's good. Let's make death our friend. Death is a natural thing. Circle of life. Let's write a song about that. Let's, let's stick it in a movie with lions and warthogs. It'll be great, right? Oh. Problem is that if you just sit with that idea that death is our friend, that death is just the final stage, it's peaceful, it's not awful, it's a beautiful thing, circle of life. You just sit for that. Just for a minute after the credits of the Lion King roll, you will know that that's the most obnoxious lie that has ever been spoken. Death is not your friend. We know that death is not our friend, and calling it so just makes it worse. The circle of life really sucks. It does. So Scripture gives us a third way. And the third way is really the only way to freedom. Here's what Scripture tells us. The death is an enemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls it the last enemy. And we get this even in the story in John chapter 11. What did Mary, Martha, as she's running out to Jesus, say? If only you would have been here, Jesus. In other words, something is wrong with this picture. This is not the way it's supposed to go. And Jesus, I know that you could have fixed it. She recognizes that something is wrong. And we know intuitively, instinctively, that there's something wrong with death, that it is not natural. All you have to do is attend the funeral of somebody who by all accounts has lived a long and beautiful and successful life. Maybe you've been to a funeral like that. The obituary is read, and, and it's something like this. She loved everyone, and everyone loved her, and she cured cancer, and she lived until she was 112. And by all accounts, she lived the most successful way possible. But even at a funeral like that, we walk in and we understand this isn't how it's supposed to go. It's not supposed to be this way. Even making it a century, even solving humanity's greatest problems, it's still not enough. Death is wrong. Death is a twisting, a perverting, a destructive force. Someone can look really peaceful in the casket. Just give it three or four days. And you know that death is not our friend. We're not meant for it. And Jesus knew that too. Jesus knew that we weren't made for death. He stands outside of Lazarus' tomb. He knows what he's about to do to call his friend from death to life. And still in the text, it says this, Jesus wept. Why does he weep? Because death is the enemy. Scripture also claims this. Not only that death is the enemy, but death is a defeated enemy. In that same text, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Where, O death, is your sting? Where is your victory? And what is he doing? He's taunting death. He's, he's literally sticking his tongue out at death. Where do you get the nerve to do that? The answer is, we get to ridicule death because of the resurrection. Because Jesus walked out of the tomb. He's broken the handcuffs of death. Death could not hold him there and the result is that it cannot hold us either. And if death has no power anymore, it's lost its stinger and it's been defanged, then number two is because of Jesus being raised for you, nothing can be done to you. Nothing. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a minister who was driving his family to the funeral of his wife. This is a true story. He had little kids with him, 
and, and his kids, and they're driving to the service of their mother, who's just passed away. And he's fully aware that death is a defeated thing, but he's trying to get that idea across to his kids, and he's thinking, how in the world do I explain to them what is going on, and that Jesus has the keys to death, and, and there's hope? How do I explain to them? And as they're on the road, he sees a semi in the distance and is traveling in the opposite direction. And he realizes that the, the way the sun is hitting the semi means that the shadow is actually in his lane. And as that semi passed, uh, they were actually hit by the shadow. And he thought, oh, that's it. And so he calls his daughter and he says, I want you, I want you to see that truck coming. He picked out another truck coming towards them. And he, he said, do you see the truck? Do you see its shadow? Would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow? His daughter said, Dad, I'd rather be hit by the shadow. He said, here's what I want you to know. The truck of death hit Jesus so that mommy only has to walk through the shadow. When you realize that because of Jesus, Death is now just a shadow. Do you realize what you can say? You can jump in with Paul. You can start to heckle death. Grave, what can you do to me? You can't do anything to me. When you're not afraid of death, you don't have to be afraid of anything. The resurrection makes death a defeated enemy, and now nothing can be done to you. I want you to let that truth argue with your conscience until it turns into an incredible confidence. I want that truth, let it argue with your heart until there's courage and there's boldness. I want you to let that truth argue with your mind until a real Savior becomes a real conviction. And let's go one step further. Jesus continues as he's talking to Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And the grammar there in that sentence indicates that even though someone has died at one point, in the future, they will live. And so Jesus is literally saying, when you die, you won't stay dead, but your body will come back to life, and you'll get a new one. And this is such a fun part of the Easter experience to talk about that here's the Christian promise that God created my body, my soul, sin has come into the picture and wrecked my body and my soul, but through the resurrection of Jesus, he's going to redeem my body and my soul. So after all my flesh has rotted away and has been worm food for a thousand years, I'm going to get a new body. It's not just that death has been defanged, but, net, but death is now turned into something that will make us more than we ever imagined we could be. As I was trying to find a picture to put up while I talked about this, I came across hedgehogs with wings. And I thought, it just made me laugh. And I thought, why not? Maybe that's a hedgehog's ultimate dream, to have wings. So let's put, out, put that up there while I talk. And it's an incredible thing when you understand what Jesus is offering here. He's saying, even if you die, you'll regain that life and you will live again. I will restore what was lost and give it back to you. That's an astounding promise. I'm realizing that the older you get, the, the more things, once they go, are irretrievable. Anybody stumbled onto that reality? That molar that you had plucked out, not growing back. 
uh, the 2020 vision that you used to have, now it's glasses for the rest of your life. Uh, that, that really fine hair that was awesome and it used to be there, but now it's not. <laughs> you, you can glue something back up there, but everybody knows what's going on. And you're not fooling anybody. That's not coming back. And we might be able to look at the eternal life that Jesus is offering and say this. Say something like this. Well, heaven will surely make up for all that I've lost. And if that were the case, and it is the case, that would be good and that would be true. But Jesus isn't just saying that. I want you to understand, it's not Jesus is saying, I will give you heaven and it will make up for your pattern baldness. No, 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 that's not it. Jesus isn't offering consolation for what we've lost. He's offering restoration of what we've lost. Do you realize that that means that you won't just get your body back, but you'll get the body you always wanted but never had? That's astounding. It means that you won't just get your life back, but you'll get the life that you always wanted but never had. It means that you won't just get that relationship back, but you'll get the one that you always hoped that it would be. With Jesus Christ in the picture, you miss nothing. Whatever is lost because you followed Christ, whatever is lost because sin has taken it from you, that thing will be restored. It will be given back to you, and it will be given back in an upgraded version, who knows, maybe even wing. And there's no other path that can offer you that kind of future. And it's the resurrection. It's the empty tomb that shows us that that's possible and true. There's a 17th century poet named George Herbert, and he's worth your time to read some of his poems, and he has a line in one of them that I use at about every funeral that I do. And it says this, George Herbert, death used to be an executioner, but is now only a gardener. Oh, do you know what that means? It means that the worst death can do to you is plant you so that you become something better. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, that what is sown as perishable will be raised as imperishable. Death just gives us more and more power and glory than we've ever had before. The resurrection makes death just a doorway. You thought that death was ending you. Turns out with Jesus, death is really making you. And so here's the third implication today. Because Jesus was raised for you, Nothing will ever be taken from you. Whatever sin has done to your life, maybe it's wrecked your health, maybe sin has robbed you of your joy, maybe sin in this world has taken your friends from you, or your family from you, or your husband, or your wife, or your mom, or dad, or your child. What Jesus is promising is that that will all be reversed and Jesus will be, make it better than before. The story of the resurrection is not just good news. It's true news. And when Jesus says, whoever believes and lives in me will never die, it means that death has no power to take you from the arms of God. Guilt cannot separate you from God. Whatever bad news you face in this life, if you've trusted Jesus, if you're living a life in Him, you don't have to live in fear because you have a resurrection coming. To the husband whose wife has left you, you have a resurrection coming. If you're older and your health is frail and almost gone, you have a resurrection coming. 
If you're a parent and you're exasperated because you don't know what to do with your teenager, you have a resurrection coming. If you're anxious, if you're guilt-ridden, if you're a lonely person, you have a resurrection coming. That's the promise. And so the question becomes, if that's the promise, do you have your receipt? The way you can tell if you have your receipt is what happens in the 45 minutes on Monday morning at 10 a.m. when the obituary is read. How do you respond? Do you deny it? Do you just say, ah, circle of life? Do you repress it? Are you afraid of it? Or do you hold your receipt up and say, death, when you come, I'm ready. You used to be an executioner, but now because of what Jesus has done, You're just a gardener, and you're going to make me better than ever. There's one more word that we need to stress in our text today, and it's the word believe. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that no one would question it except for two things. This is what Wolfgang Pannenberg writes. He says, first, it's a very unusual event. I mean, nobody walks out of a a tomb. That just doesn't happen. And second, he says, if you believe the resurrection happened, then you have to change the way you live. Why? Because now Jesus is Lord of death, and he's the Lord of life. That means he's the Lord of everything. And so today, this resurrected Christ will ask you the same question he asked Martha. He said this at the end of this uh, famous, famous line. He says, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? And the answer to that question, he asks you the same thing today. The answer to that question will reorder your whole life. Because the opinions you hold will necessarily have to change if you realize that the tomb is empty. Because the resurrection is not just a future reality, it's also a present certainty. It matters today. Do you believe that Jesus can forgive your sin and make you at one with God again? That will change the way you live. Do you believe that Jesus can erase death so that it's no longer the monster that we've made it out to be? That will change the way you live. Do you believe that Jesus can fix everything that sin has broken in your life? That will change the way you live. And Martha responded this way, and it's perfect for us today. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. That was her response. What's your? What's your response? Do you believe? Do you believe in the empty tomb enough to begin living in Jesus? Because we are saved when we are in Him. If we, we have life, if we are found in Him and You can be in Him today. Scripture tells us to be in Him means to come with faith that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to come in the waters of baptism. Do you need to respond in that way today? Please don't leave. Make sure you have a receipt. I'd like you to get your communion elements uh, together. And we will lead into our communion time. 
And the communion table, if it's about anything, is about belief. It's about coming around the table every Sunday and reaffirming and restating our belief. And we, we say the same thing that, Mar- that Martha said. We say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we point to the resurrection as proof that what we believe is true. And so I'm going to pray in just a second, and then we'll give you some time to take your emblems, and we'll all take them together. Uh, But today, as you reflect, after you take your emblems, we're going to put some things on the screen to help you. And these are just uh, statements that you can use to pray to God, to thank Him, to give Him thanks. Things like this. I believe that the resurrection... Because of it, nothing can help be held against me. I believe that because of the resurrection, nothing can be done to me. I believe that because of the resurrection, nothing can be taken from me. Would you focus on those statements as you thank God for the empty tomb today and for what Jesus has done in giving us a receipt that we can use and have life forever? Let me pray, and then we'll celebrate communion together. God the emblems given to us by Jesus are declarations of belief and we use them in this way today. As we take the bread and the cup, our declaration is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Our affirmation is that to be in Him is to have life and we know that wherever Jesus is, there is life necessarily. We know that He turns our graves into gardens in our life. So let us hold closer to Christ and to his resurrection than ever before. And it's in the name of the one who called Lazarus from the tomb, alive even though he had died. It's in the name of the giver of life, Jesus, that we celebrate communion today with this bread and this cup. And all the people said, Amen.